Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham. Welcome to Digging Deeper, episode 49. Through each episode of this podcast, we dig deeply into a certain theme or topic to see what the Bible has to say about it. This episode discusses why some people still believe the earth is flat. Later in the podcast, I'll share some thoughts on why Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. But first, is there a difference between being in God's love and choosing to accept salvation? Let's find out. First question we're going to get into is this one. Is there a difference between being in God's love and plan and choosing to accept salvation? It's like a ticket that is always yours, but if you don't choose to use it, it doesn't mean that it wasn't given to you. Please discuss. And so let's discuss this. The short answer to the question is yes. Yes. Yes, there is a difference between being in God's love and plan and choosing to accept salvation. And some of the verses of Scripture that spring to mind, particularly the Apostle John, because he was the one that talked about love the most, um, everyone is loved by God. There is You'll never, ever lock eyes with anyone who God doesn't love. God loves every person, and he loves them as much as he loves you and me. And so that's really important. If you can live with that in your mind, uh, that really is a life-changing truth, I believe. So think of John 3.16, for example, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God loves the entire world. In 1 John 4.8, the apostle wrote, God is love. God is love, the essence of God is love. And then 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself is the royal law of scripture. We find it repeated about eight times throughout the entire Bible. Love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, God practices what he preaches. So God loves everyone. And then Jesus, of course, taught us to love our enemies. And again, you know, Jesus practices what he preaches. So Jesus loves God loves uh, his enemies as well. So God loves all people. Um, and that's so that's a really important um, uh, foundation for us to kick off with. But then consider some of these uh, verses as well. Romans 4.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, his love demonstrated while we were still sinners. So in other words, he didn't wait for me to get my act together and to become perfect and to uh, repent of all my sin and all of that. God loved me while I was still a sinner and Christ died for us before we got our act together. I mean, do any of us completely have our act together? Anyway, I'll just throw that one out there. Think of Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says the Apostle Paul, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so this is where we start to see the transition here. Yes, God loves everyone, but there is a difference between being in God's love 
and choosing salvation. So the gospel here is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So something we have to do here, calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So there is no restriction here, but there is a responsibility. God's provided it all for us. We just have to say, yes, please calling on the name of the Lord. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. John 1 and verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so there's again, there's an onus that comes back on people. Everyone who received Jesus, everyone who believe in the name of Jesus, he then gives the right to become a son and daughter of the living God. The last verses of the entire Bible, uh, Revelation 22 and verse 17, talks about the breadth of this salvation that God has provided for humanity through the person of Jesus. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Wonderful, wonderful truth. Anyone, 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 all the way through there. And uh, anyone who wants to receive the salvation of God uh, will receive it. So, um, so important that we understand those things, that God has given us free will. So he's not going to force himself on you. That's why I don't believe in universalism as a, as a doctrine, because it says, that everyone will be saved. Well, that's presuming that God's going to force anyone who doesn't want to be. And so salvation has been made available to all people. Jesus said, I've, I've thrown my fishing net into the human race through the cross and I have drawn all people to myself. He's made it possible, but he's still given us free will. And so it's up to us then to say, yes, I'm going to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. I'm going to receive Jesus. I'm going to believe in his name to be made a child of God. And so there's something that we do. So God makes salvation available to all people. He gives the gift of faith. He gives the gifts of grace and repentance. We can't repent without the grace of God. The Father then draws people to Jesus, but it's up to each person to respond to God's call to salvation. No one's forced. No one is coerced. And so those verses of Scripture that we've looked at there are really important. A recurrent theme in Scripture is the love and grace of God for all people and uh, the offer to all people to respond to that grace by accepting the free gift of salvation. And so, yes, there is a difference between being in love, uh, sorry, being in God's love and plan and choosing to accept salvation. It is like a ticket. That's always yours, but if you don't use it, it doesn't mean it wasn't given to you. And that's a really important point there because Reformed theology, uh, that which particularly was developed by John Calvin about 500 years ago during the Reformation, they came up with uh, some really good stuff, but they came up with, with one really dodgy doctrine, and it's the doctrine of predestination for salvation. And I believe it's a, a complete distortion on predestination because we never Bible never says that we're predestined to be saved. 
Uh, it talks about predestination for other things, but not for salvation. And and the thought there that Calvin and then his his um, followers came up with was that God literally chooses to create some people for grace and eternal life and other people that never had the possibility of responding to the gospel. And they're referred to as objects of wrath that God can express his anger toward uh, because of sin and unholiness on the planet, that God can literally uh, create people that never have the opportunity to respond to his grace. Uh, and then uh, when they die, of course, he throws them into hell to torture them, to torment them for eternity without the possibility of that ever ending. That is a horrendous doctrine and and completely counter to the nature of God, which is love. And so I did a whole episode of Digging Deeper on that topic of predestination and answering the question, does God make some people uh, just because he's angry and uh, doing a deep dive into Romans chapter 9. So that's episode 31 of Digging Deeper. And if you want to find out a little bit more about that topic, I invite you to catch up with that episode. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. I was talking to a friend who told me that they believed the earth is flat. I'm a bit flummoxed about the theory. Can you cover this at some point, please? Yes. And i got to say, I love the word flummoxed. I think that's a sensational word. It sounds like it means. Um, I had one of my Facebook friends left this comment on my thread today. He said, the flat earthers still keep pushing their message all around the globe. Very clever. Thank you for that one. So let's dig into this. And, and got to say that ancient, particularly prehistoric people, so people that lived, say, older than 3,000, 4,000 years ago, so in the early times of scripture people believed that the earth was a flat disk so it was it was a disk it was a flat disk uh, above it was the heavens stretched out like a canopy and under it was the grave the nether world they weren't really sure and there was a belief that the sun went down um, and then it grew legs and ran under the earth and so it was ready to pop up at the opposite side of the disk the next morning. So that was the perspective of, of ancient people or, or people in prehistoric times. And you can understand that, can't you? Because they didn't have a global mindset. They, they, were, they were nomadic tribes. They were warrior tribes. Maybe they lived in small, rudimental villages. But their village or their, their encampment would be the centre of their world. And they would be able to look out at different parts of their landscape, whether that was land or sea or a combination of both. And, and you hit the horizon and it looks like the horizon kind of curves around. And so if you look at it from their limited perspective, the earth looked like a flat disk, but also, of course, with mountains and other geographical features. And, and the Bible, uh, some of the scriptures reflect 
this uh, sort of perspective. And so let's have a look at some of these verses. First of all, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, God sits above the circle of the earth, the circle of the earth. Now, I used to read that like it was a globe. And I thought, oh, well, there it is. The Bible teaches that the earth is a globe. No, it doesn't. It teaches that it's a circle. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent for them. And so the heavens there, the atmosphere, looked like a tent to them that was stretched over the disc. Uh, then we get into Job, quite a few verses in Job. Uh, chapter 9, verse 6, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. And so there was a belief that the flat disc was actually held up by pillars. Why that was on, I am not really sure. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8, and verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. So... This here in Proverbs 8 is talking about wisdom, and wisdom is personified as uh, as a woman, as Sophia. And wisdom is saying here, when he, when God established the heavens, I was there. Wisdom was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. And there, there was a belief by some people, by some ancient people, that uh, the creation, if you like, was this massive water and the, and the circle of the earth floated on that water, and that's what we see reflected there in Proverbs 8 and 27. Back to Job, chapter 38, verse 6, to what were its foundations fastened, or who laid its cornerstone? Again, talking about the earth, the foundations of the earth. What were the foundations of the earth fastened to? I don't know. Who laid its cornerstone? I have no idea. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1, this message is from the Lord who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth and formed the human spirit. So some fascinating uh, verses from the Bible there. What we've got to realise is that most of those are from the poetic books. So Job and Proverbs particularly, and even the, the verse in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22 is taken from a song. And so all of those will be using poetic license. So we know from even our songs today, they use poetic license. That they, they use uh, word pictures, if you like, that we know are not factually true, but they convey truth as meaning. And that's what the scriptures are doing there. Zechariah, of course, uh, was, was a prophecy. There are other verses in the Bible that are taken by the Flat Earth Society as uh, trying to prove that the earth is flat, but really they're figures of speech. For example, the Bible says it talks about the ends of the earth, which we would still talk about today. You know, you've travelled a long way. Oh, goodness, I've been to the end of the earth and, and back again. Uh, some of the other verses in the Bible say uh, talk about the four corners of the earth. And again, that is an idiomatic expression that we use today. We know uh, when we want to talk about the whole world, we talk about the four corners of the earth, but it doesn't mean that the earth is this flat square or disc or whatever. These are expressions we talk about. For example, uh, did you see sunrise today? Did you see the sunrise or did you see the sunset tonight? Now, 
the sun actually doesn't rise. It doesn't set, doesn't move. The earth moves. But rather than saying, oh, did you see the sun as the earth rotated this morning? <laughs> it would be very verbose. And so we talk about sunrise and sunset, but we know that the sun is stationary. It's not a problem as well that the Bible teaches these things because the Bible reflects how ancient people engaged with God and how God engaged with them. And so they saw God and creation through their culture and through their understanding. And then by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote down their understandings and have passed them down from generation to generation. So even though some of those statements are not factually or scientifically true, there is truth of meaning there that still resonates with us thousands of years later. Now, of course, once trade increased around the world, people began to come up with other theories about what the earth was like. In the late 7th to early 6th century BC, the Ionian geometer Thales postulated that the earth was a disk that floated on the ocean. So it was round, but still flat, bobbing away on the ocean. His younger associate, Aximander, speculated that the earth was a cylinder, like a column floating upright in the centre of the universe. And then we've got Pythagoras, Plato, Socrates, uh, all noted for debating the shape of the earth in their time. They all believed that the earth was at the centre of the universe, something we now know, now know not to be true, although the earth looks to us like being in the centre of the universe because, once again, we look out through the universe with the perspective that we have. Now, we have a greater perspective than the people did 4,000 years ago. We've got all these phenomenal telescopes and all sorts of stuff. And so we are, with the aid of telescopes and other technology, able to look out through about 15 billion light years in any direction. And so if you were to draw a circle, it would look like the Earth is in the centre of the universe, but it's only because that's our perspective. You could be somewhere else in the universe and also look out, and you'd see parts of the universe that we can't see from here. Aristotle then, in the 4th century BC, appears to have landed on the Earth being a sphere, and he wrote the following in his treatise, which was called uh, On the Heavens, and I quote Aristotle here. <clears throat> How else would eclipses of the moon show segments shaped as we see them? As it is, the shapes which the moon itself each month shows are of every kind, straight, gibbous, and concave. But in eclipses, the outline is always curved. And since it is the interposition of the earth that makes the eclipse, the form of this line will be caused by the form of the earth's surface, which is therefore spherical. Again, our observations of the stars make it evident not only that the earth is circular, but also that it is a circle of no great size. Fascinating from Aristotle 400 years before Jesus. Greek philosophers established that the earth was round as far back as the 3rd century BC, but it wasn't until the 15th century that it became commonly accepted. And uh, some parts of the church were dragged kicking and screaming uh, no, they had verses. They had chapter and verse that proved otherwise, but finally science won over and some common sense as well.
And so just as I finish this off, why do some people still believe that the earth is flat? And I've written down here four reasons. You could possibly think of others, but my number one reason why some people think that the earth is flat is because of distrust. So there is a distrust in some people of any view that an expert has uh, or any view that the mainstream media communicates. And so academics, scientific agencies, the governments, mainstream media, there's a, a percentage of people in our societies, in the West particularly, that have a great distrust of these things. And so they're looking for alternatives. The second reason why I think that there are still flat earthers around is the rise of social media and social media influences. So social media is a wonderful thing. It enables us to communicate in this way um, and for people to hear podcasts and all sorts of stuff all around the world to disseminate great truth. But also <laughs> a lot of other stuff is disseminated. Um, a lot of rubbish is spread. And, and particularly social media influencers, they have a huge responsibility, but sometimes they talk about stuff that they have no idea about and they just have an opinion about something. And so they share that opinion and millions of people are listening to them and go, oh, yeah, so-and-so says so, so it must be true. And so that influence uh, spreads false information. And sometimes people trust a social media influencer more than they would trust, say, an academic or uh, scientists. The third thing kind of ties into that, and that is the algorithm. So whatever you look at on Facebook or whatever social media you engage with, whatever you look at, the algorithms will dish up more of the same. So a, a recent example, someone sent me a clip uh, a little while ago, a link to a YouTube clip of Il Volvo. There are uh, four, three Italian guys, young blokes in their 20s, with the most amazing operatic voices. And uh, a friend of mine sent it to me and said, watch this, it's awesome. So I watched it. And yeah, it was. I mean, it gave me, gave me goosebumps. By the way, I think they're coming to Melbourne uh, sometime later this year. And uh, so I watched this by Il Volo. The next thing up in my YouTube feed, all of these other clips of Il Vol Volo start popping up. Uh, and so I'm like, oh, that's interesting. What was happening? Well, the algorithms picked up that I'd watch one clip and said, Rob liked that. Let's give him more. And so what happens if you're, if you're reading stuff, for example, lots of articles about conspiracies, then the algorithms will dish up more of the same. And the danger of that is that then you live in this echo chamber because it keeps dishing up more information to try and reinforce your viewpoint. But if the information is false, then all it's doing is re-entrenching you in that fake story. The fourth thing really kind of leads into that, and that is an increased belief in conspiracies. Um, and, of course, we've seen that during the pandemic. None of us were ready for that. I didn't realise at the time that one of the symptoms of a pandemic was people believing in various conspiracy theories. Um, but when I started reading history, I realized that every time there's a pandemic, there's a, a whole lot of conspiracies that get circulated around that pandemic. So what we experienced in, 19, in 2020 and 21 
is nothing weird, although it was weird and it was frustrating at times uh, trying to help people see truth in the midst of various conspiracies. And I think some people kind of buy into that stuff. Um, I know I did in the early years of my Christian experience. One of the things that kind of drew me to Christianity was the end times teaching and books like The Late Great Planet Earth and that, you know, Jesus was coming back in 1988 and the rapture was going to happen and a great tribulation and all of this stuff. It was a very exciting time to be alive, but nothing happened. And uh, and that's the thing with these conspiracies. Uh, they're invariably dead wrong and conspiracy theorists will go from one theory to another uh, very rarely with any reflection on the fact that everything they talked about a year ago or two years ago actually never happened. It didn't happen. Um, but, but you know, some people just believe that stuff. So um, in the early days of my Christian experience, I believed in a global plot through the Illuminati to enslave the masses. I was waiting for Antichrist and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, and so people buy into that Um they believe that pictures taken from space are an elaborate hoax involving multiple governments to spread this fake news about the Earth being a sphere, a globe, and it's really flat. The Flat Earth Society, by the way, was founded in 1956, and it once reached 3,500 people. Today, if you go on to uh, theflatearthsociety.org, fascinating website. I spent a little bit of time on that earlier today. Uh, they claim 555 members, and all the members are listed on their website. A 2017 national poll by public policy polling found that 1% of Americans believe that the earth is flat. Now, 1% might not sound like a lot, but there's 332 million Americans. And so 1% is over 3 million people. I kid you not, over 3 million Americans believe the earth is flat. And there's an additional 6% of Americans who aren't sure whether the earth is flat or round. They're scary statistics. A 2018 article in the Colorado Sun on a flat earth convention in Denver found that many attendees believed a whole suite of conspiracy theories such as all politicians are actors and that powerful shadowy forces control the world. So that's the kind of territory that you're venturing into if you engage with a flat earther. Uh, there are some links online if you want to learn how to talk to someone who is a flat earther. If someone said to me that they believed the earth was flat, I would say something like this, well, that's very interesting. I don't believe that. Hey, let's talk about something else, shall we? And just kind of move the conversation on. Why did Lot's wife have her free will taken away from her? Fascinating question. Stories recorded in Genesis chapter 19, and you can read the whole story for yourself. But let me just read a few verses to you from verse 15. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away 
when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them to safety out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. So there's the the statement from the angels, right? Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere on the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. And, and at that point, Lot begs them for permission to settle in a small town near enough for them to run to. Um, and the the town is called Zoar, which means small or little. And uh, it was a little town not too far away. The family could run there and the angels gave them permission. So reading on in verse 23, by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Interesting when you look at the geography of the area that there are lots of combustible minerals around that area, That's in the area of the Dead Sea. And so an earthquake back in the day could have released and ignited a lot of these minerals and gases, which would then explode and literally then rain down on the inhabitants of the Twin Cities. Sulfur in these verses is better translated as asphalt. Uh, deposits of which are found on the southern shore of the Dead Sea. The salt deposits around the Dead Sea can take the forms of pillars like memorials to Lot's wife. They're formed as salt spray blows off the Dead Sea and then builds on top of each other and builds these fascinating pillars. I imagine if you go online, you'd be able to find uh, some photos uh, of those. Uh, the story is one of reluctance. And so what we see as you read through Genesis 19 is Lot and his wife are really not keen on leaving. They want to stay where they are. In the end, the angels have to grab them by the hand and literally drag them out of the city. And uh, Lot, if you if you look in chapter 19, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law. This is before uh, the this is the day before, uh, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. That's right. And, oh, good one, Lot. Thanks a lot. Okay. So Lot's wife looked back, and, and I think that statement there kind of reflects the reluctance that we see all the way through this story. They really wanted to be there. They wanted to be in Sodom. They didn't want to leave. They were reluctant to leave. And Lot's wife's heart was still there. And so even though she was told, don't look back, keep running, she looked back. And as she stood and looked back, she was caught up in the judgment of God in that whatever it was, earthquake, explosions, and, and raining fire and brimstone. She's mentioned again, interestingly, in the New Testament, in Luke 17, in connection with another judgment. And the context there is Jesus' warning of a judgment that was going to be coming up 
uh, in around 40 years. Uh, he was speaking, of course, in AD, around AD 30-ish, and uh, he gave lots of warnings about what would happen in 40 years' time in AD 70 when uh, the nations of uh, Rome, or the armies of Rome at least, gathered around Jerusalem for three and a half years, great tribulation period, um, and then finally, of course, they uh, laid siege to Jerusalem and uh, and then finally invaded Jerusalem, knocked the walls down, burned the temple, and uh, and destroyed the city. And so Jesus is, in Luke 17, giving detail and warning about that time of judgment that was going to come up in AD 70, and he says, remember Lot's wife, three little words. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. And so really reflective of Lot's wife, she tried to keep her life. She wanted to be in Sodom. She really was reluctant to leave, and, of course, she lost her life as a result. Getting back to the question, to Mark's question, why did Lot's wife have her free will taken away from her? The fact is she didn't. Uh, the fact is that her free will was the thing that got her into trouble and ended her life. So she had free will all the time. She was given warnings, keep running, don't look back, don't stop, keep going. But she didn't listen. Out of her free will, she stopped, she looked back, she stood there and got caught up in the judgment of God. It's a little bit like I would say to my kids when they were younger, I would warn them about potential danger. There's a fire. Don't touch the fire. The fire's hot. Invariably, the child has to learn from experience rather than the warning of mum or dad. And so they go and touch the fire and, ah, I got burnt. Well, yes, I told you you would get burnt if you touch the fire. And this is a little bit like Lot's wife here. I told you not to look back. I told you to keep running and you wouldn't listen. But the New Testament, in the words of Jesus there, uh, give us a really, really good encouragement in life. Keep looking forward. Uh, don't look back. Don't spend time uh, regretting. Uh, don't look back and uh, and keep rehearsing stuff that you can't change in the present. Keep looking forward. Keep your hand to the plough and uh, keep moving forward and keep following Jesus. Now, my rabbi friend sent this comment through uh, a little bit earlier, and he says, here's a hint. This is about the story of Lot's wife. How many times in our lives or we witness in someone else's life, do we know that to move on and leave a dysfunctional situation is the healthy way to go? The sacred inside of us compels us to move forward. Do not be seduced by the past, the familiar, an abusive past or relationship, etc. But sometimes we turn and focus on that dysfunctional past and it paralyzes us and we become frozen. We are mostly water, salt water. We are fluid and we have the ability to move on, adapt. But when we choose not to move on, the fluidness drains from us and all that is left is a pillar of salt. I always identified at times with Lot's wife, leaving behind part of our lives has got to be painful even if it is right. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Every Wednesday, a new episode of Digging Deeper is released. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others 
and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic that you'd like Rob to address, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page. Join us next week as Pastor Rob answers the question, why does the Bible teach that women should wear head coverings in church? We'll also discover how to overcome grief and find strength in life's struggles and find out why Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. We hope you'll join us then.